Welcome to All About Campion, an introduction to loving the films and sometimes the TV shows of Jane Campion. I'm Ingu King, a critic at the Washington Post, and my co-host is Daniel Schrader, a podcast producer at Slate. Hey, Ingu, are any of these actually TV shows, though? Uh, let's talk about it in just a little bit. Daniel, um, we're going to go off book a little bit today. I'm going to start us with a quote. From Quentin Tarantino? <laughs> and I just want you to bask in this quote because I think that is actually all you can really do with it. So. Hit me. Before I even made Bright Star, I had the idea I'd like to do a crime mystery story set in that part of the world with the themes of paradise. I think the dreams we have in our life are probably more substantial than reality, like the hope for love or a soulmate. I would say the dream of paradise, a place on earth where things are simpler and somehow you're away from all the complications of life, is also a very enduring dream that is so powerful for the whole world. To me, our story really looks at the power of these dreams and for the people who are the casualties of the dreams. That's some Jane Campion-ass shit right there. Like, <laughs> what a string of hilarious nonsense. <laughs> Bless her. Last time, we got in deep with In the Cut. On this episode, we are going to talk about the first season of Campion's thus far only TV series, Top whoa, of the Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's her second TV series. That's a miniseries, so it doesn't count. Okay, sorry. Keep going. Uh, what we were referring to, obviously, was an angel at my table. In Top of the Lake, Elizabeth Moss stars in the 2013 season as Robin, a detective returning to her rural hometown in New Zealand after spending the last decade or so in Sydney, Australia. I think it's fair to say the show's most memorable character, however, is Holly Hunter's G.J., a mysterious guru to a group of broken middle-aged women who have decided to create a new home for themselves in an area called Paradise. As G.J., Hunter wears a long gray wig that many people have noted looks quite a bit like Campion's own hair, although Hunter and Campion have stated that she is not the model for G.J., but rather that the character is an homage to an Indian guru named U.G. Krishnamurti, who made a big impact on the director. Uh, and by the way, if you have not yet seen Holy Smoke, please watch it immediately. And if you don't know why I'm mentioning it, again, please go watch it immediately. Directed by Jane Campion and Garth Davis, the seven-part police procedural is striking for how much it doesn't quite feel like the usual police procedural. Uh, although it's a lot more ooh, efficient looking than Campion's films, the series does have her fingerprints all over it. Top of the Lake takes place against dramatic New Zealand landscapes. Although, for perhaps the first time since The Piano, we get a sense of how arduous it must be to actually live amid such beautiful but isolated nature. The series is also largely about male violence against women and female survival and resilience in spite of it. In the U.S., Top of the Lake aired on the Sundance Channel and was nominated for a handful of Emmys, including Best Miniseries or Movie, writing in that genre for Campion and Sweetie co-writer Gerard Lee, directing by Campion and Davis, 
Best Lead Actress for Elizabeth Moss, and Best Supporting Actor for Peter Mullen, who plays a local gangster eventually revealed to have a finger in every pie in Robin's hometown. Hunter, who I think it should be noted actually only appears in like 10 minutes total, uh, was also nominated for a SAG Award. Unlike in previous episodes, I think that we should talk mostly in a spoiler-free context, um, and then toward the end, we'll have a spoilery section. So, Daniel, you ready? I'm ready. In broad strokes, the story is about Sydney detective Robin Griffin, played by Elizabeth Moss, who returns to her hometown in New Zealand to care for her dying mother, and ends up entangled in a sexual assault investigation because a 12-year-old girl... Tui, played by Jacqueline Joe, is pregnant. While Robin is starting her investigation, we also meet the women at Paradise and their cult-like leader, G.J., played by Holly Hunter. The women are in a dispute with Matt Mitchum, played by Peter Mullen, a local drug kingpin who claims the land they're on was owed to him. We learn that Matt is the father of Tui and seems to be the father of a lot of other children and adults in the town. As Robin digs deeper, we find out the reason she's so passionate about this case is because how similarly it mirrors her own experience when she was raped as a teenager and became pregnant, eventually carrying the child to term and giving it up for adoption. Uh, she reconnects with her high school sweetheart, Jono, played by Tom Wright, a son of Matt Mitchum's, but her mother is really against them being together for reasons that we will find out. Tui runs away from home with a gun and hides in the forest, and her friend Jamie, played by Luke Buchanan, brings her food and necessities, but eventually falls to his death after Matt's men chased him and Tui through the woods. Anything else I feel like would be an actual spoiler? So I think that's where we should leave it until we get to the spoiler chunk. Um, so I think that we watched most of this together, and at some point you said, oh, this is just like Mayor of Easttown or Mayor of Queenstown. Um, like, what brought you to say that? Well, I mean, it's very similar in that it's a story of a female detective who seems driven by something more than just professional interest or curiosity to get justice uh, for someone, even when it seems everybody else is disinterested in helping solve the actual case and i don't know it also felt kind of like like the local griminess of it i would say um the like small town feel of both of them and yeah it just kind of moody in the same way yeah i think one of the things that i i, I want to get this off the bat like i think this is a very good show I oh think i agree it is also like an incredibly messy show um I honestly, like, I think if you took out, like, Gigi and, like, that women's camp, which is, like, absolutely the most interesting thing about Top of the Lake, if you just, like, lifted that from the plot, I don't think the plot would actually change very much. I feel like with a lot of, like, the women's camp stuff, uh, it felt like they were there sort of like for atmospherics more than like actual importance. And and I think that there's like a lot of like uh, thematic meatiness to the women's camp. But ultimately, I don't think that they were like super crucial to sort of like the structure of Top of the Lake. And so, yeah, I think there's like, a, there's a messiness here. But also, I love this. Yeah. Oh, I loved it too. I think that it is kind of 
a jumbled mess at times. I think that like I really enjoy the women's camp, but like it feels so like when I think of those scenes and then I think of like the series, I literally can't tell you where any of them happened in the story. Like the scene where Genevieve Lemon, so happy to see her. When Genevieve Lemon goes and has sex with like whomever in the like local bar establishment wants to fuck her, I can't tell you when that happens in this show because like it is so out of the realm of the rest of the story. And so much of that feels like their atmosphere, they're not substance. Yeah. And I do think it's interesting that GJ, and I almost feel like that name is like hard to say. Like, Oh, it's terrible. Almost. It's a terrible name. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like GJ, you know, there's like nothing about her really that like leads the protagonist anywhere. There's nothing about her that leads Chewy anywhere. She speaks in these like really vague, like almost fortune cookie like aphorisms and you're constantly like what the fuck is she saying also she's such a bully yes i have no idea like what these women are getting out of her even though they're getting what they got from their husbands oh my god that's like the most depressing thing (laughs) uh apparently jane campion herself called these women like, in her head, the unfuckables. That's a harsh. No, but I think that's sort of, like, the, like, mode of womanhood that she was, like, really interested in as, like, a, as a gray-haired middle-aged woman herself. I think, like, that's sort of, like, the period of life she was interested in exploring. And I think, like, the one thing I found super compelling thematically about these like severely broken women uh a bunch of whom are actually american and i think are supposed to be like much wealthier than the uh people in the town and that's why they're not sort of like beholden to matt mitchum is that you can sort of see that they are like the future selves of the slightly younger women who work for matt mitchum because they feel like they have no other a way of making a living in this like extremely isolated small town and when they finally decide that they're going to go against him and like testify against his drug uh drug ring yeah yeah his drug ring that's sort of like the point at which there is like a there is a form of resistance and then as we see like that whole attempt at resistance is ultimately also really compromised by the police captain but ultimately yeah like you could sort of, you can sort of see like these uh slightly younger women like being on like the precipice of being broken and then sort of like the actual women who are broken it's almost like a before after mm-hmm. i also just found super striking that whole image of all of these women living in shipping containers mm-hmm. and for 50 dollars a week <laughs> And I totally, on the one hand, like understood where Matt Mitchum was coming from because he wants us land, which is by this like gorgeous lake where the town is. And his mother was buried on it. Yes, to be as like clean as possible. And he's basically like, you guys are foreigners who have no idea how to live on this land. And you're going to like pollute it with like your, 
I mean, like, your shit and, like, your piss, basically, right? And so I like that that was sort of, like, a point. Um, I wish you could sympathize with this, like, highly unsympathetic character. Although Peter Mullen, like, also acts the shit out of, like, Matt Mitchum. And he is, like, and has made him, like, deeply compelling and, like, absolutely a sort of, like, Harvey Keitel stand-in in this show. Yeah, when you said that while we were watching it, uh, the, this is Harvey Keitel's role, I, w- I totally agree with you. I think that Mullen does a great job, and uh, he's terrifying. Like, yes. Even from the like first moments that we really meet him, where he basically murders the guy who gave the land to the ladies that were supposed to be given to him. Like, We, from the jump, the first episode, know like this is not a guy to fuck with. But also, like, kind of exciting because we know that, like, that means that, like, Elizabeth Moss is going to fuck with him. I will say this. I think that I have, unfortunately, seen my share of mysteries, mystery shows about rape. And a lot of those shows have really revolved around, like, oh, is, like, the woman telling the truth or is the man telling the truth? And it just, like, feels really gross. And one thing I really appreciated about, like, this particular version of a police procedural is that it it's just, it just, like, feels really unique. I think, like, the stakes are different. Um, also, the fact that, like, even the girl who is pregnant doesn't know, like, why she's pregnant or how this happened. I think that's just, like, a really, really compelling storyline. And I think for most of the show, like, you, you can't really tell like what she knows but um yeah i found that particular like reconfiguring of the rape mystery to be really fascinating and also like a really neat parallel with what campion was trying to subvert with the erotic thriller in in the cut yeah i mean wow we love to do a podcast about rape i guess That's, (laughs) that's our brand thank you but uh, speaking of the genre of erotic thriller, like having watched this and having watched now most all of Campion's work, uh, it's so interesting how like besides Sweetie and Holy Smoke, all of her work is genre work in a way. And like, but at the same time, it's so much more than that. Like we have... Uh, in the cut, which is the erotic thriller, we have this, which is the like crime procedural. We have the piano, which is just a straightforward drama. And yet, like because she's Campion, she can make so much more of that. So, like even if this rape crime procedural is like, oh, we've seen this, we know this, this is like old hat by this point, she makes it fresh because of her own perspective and her own, I guess, campionness that like, I found myself just wanting to watch all of this in one stream. It was very engaging. I really, this was like a rare show for me where I found it like actually really hard to binge. Well, then good thing you weren't at Sundance the year it premiered because they watched it all in seven hours with one break for lunch and an intermission. That sounds like an endurance test. Um. (laughs) Yes. Congrats to those people. I think that there are some things where 
So, like, in the press tour leading up to this TV show, which she, I don't think, did, like, a ton of interviews for, she did sort of do, like, the obligatory thing of, like, a lot of people were like, oh, my God, this film director is making television. And then she had to sort of, like, go around being like, actually, like, TV is, like, where it's at now. TV is the new film. I mean, that's, like, the gist of, like, what she said. I think one thing that, like, we really were almost, like, forced to grapple with while watching this is that it is absolutely not structured like a television show. Like, it's just, like, a very, like, hinky experience watching it as television. And I truly, truly, truly hate it when someone, like, you know, like, the guys behind Game of Thrones say, oh, we actually made, like, a hundred-hour movie. Like, fuck off. Like, that's dumb. Well, it's a bad movie. (laughs) but in this case i actually feel like if someone told me this was a six-hour movie i would be like that actually makes so much more sense than this being a seven-part miniseries oh i agree i think that like yeah i i would watch sit down and watch this as a six-hour movie did you love uh gj's look the like big long wig and sort of like the earth tones I, i i think like they said part of the look was to sort of just, like, try to get GJ to blend into the background. Mm. That's interesting. I I liked her because I like Holly Hunter in basically anything. I think she's great. And so, like, I was excited to see her. But the role is just weird because it doesn't seem to actually do much in terms of, like, plot or even really in some ways, like, thematic developments, I don't know, we don't get enough from her ever to ever feel like I have an understanding of who she is or how she fits into the landscape of this show. And so, like, I kept, I was kind of left wanting more the whole time, and not in, like, a satisfactory way, but in, like, a there's something missing here kind of way. Yeah. You get, I think, like, She speaks like Holly Hunter, so she has, like, an American accent. We learn that she's actually a Swiss national. Have no idea how that happened. And then I think that because it's a woman's camp and all of these women are broken and she has taken it upon herself to be their leader, you assume that she sort of comes with this, like, feminist ideology or, like, basically any kind of ideology. Kind of like some, like, Earth Mother energy. Or even, like, a specific worldview. And you really get nothing. You get cones where you're supposed to be, like, meditate on, like, what this is supposed to actually mean. Yes, but then she also yells at the girls who are meditating. (laughs) And she also just, like, is mean to them. She yells at, like... She's really mean to them. Like, grow up. Stop acting like how you're acting. Like, she's just shitty to them. But they kind of seem to want that. Yeah. I was sort of like, you should have saved that money for therapy. I think I got the sense that like when Tui would come or Tui and her friend Jamie would come to the camp and they would want food while Tui was hiding from her dad and like sort of hiding out in the woods. I got the sense that they were able to find that they were useful again in these, like, maternal roles. And they were able to kind of 
uh, use their life experience to help this little girl who was in need. And I think that they got something out of that. But I was never convinced that, like, by the end of the series, they were actually helped by anything. I do have a really nice um, image that I got from a Holly Hunter interview about Top of the Lake, where she said that, like, after they would film particular scenes, they would all go jump in the lake right behind them. Um, and Jane was also there leading the charge. So Of course. <laughs> I, I think one of the really great things about um, the scenes in the camp is just these like women like wandering around like in nature completely naked. It's sort of just like a group of like postmenopausal eaves who decided, like, they don't actually need Adam anymore. It's just, like, a really beautiful, like, really, sorry, paradisical image. Oh, I agree. I think that, like, this show wouldn't be half as good without that existing in it, even if it is such a small part of the, like, story as a whole. Like, we've clearly, we've spent so much time talking about it already. Yeah, uh, should we talk about, like, the parts of the show that are actually the show? <laughs> yes, except that I do think that we need to note the joke that we both made while watching it, which is that Holly Hunter's character is really just also her character from Mr. Mayor. Yes, RP. Yes. RP? Um, GJ? <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> so, so we have a little bit of a almost... Uh, the piano reunion because we've got Holly Hunter, we've got Genevieve Lemon, who played the Nelly in the piano, and we and Jane Campion actually uh, initially offered the role of Robin to Anna Paquin. Oh, which I think she would have been really, really good at. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, Anna Paquin had to say no. Because she was pregnant with twins. So we're here with Elizabeth Moss, who is also very, very good. Uh, okay, so thrown for a loop right now. But do you remember how you said while we were watching it, that woman looks like Lucy Lawless's sister? Yes. That woman was Lucy Lawless. No. Lucy Lawless is in this show. No. What the fuck? I know, right? How do we miss this? We're so dumb. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, let's get to uh, the stuff that actually matters. Yeah, literally everything else that happens in the show. So one thing that was very interesting to me while watching this uh, again, and also watching it with you when you were watching it again, is that you apparently had like zero recollection who the father of Tui's baby was. And I definitely remembered, but I'd basically forgotten everything else about the show. Like, other than, like, the whole thing that happens at the very end, and also GJ's whole thing. I don't know, did you like it as a mystery? I, I, I think I like the fact that, like, I don't know, it seemed like Campion was, like, much more interested in sort of doing, like, an indictment of, like, how dysfunctional the police was. Uh, compared to, like, actually pursuing the mystery. 
Well, yeah, and also just like how corrupt the entire town is. And yeah. is like controlled solely by Matt Mitchum, it seems. So much so that like he has basically sowed his seed across the entire town. And I think that like the mystery, yeah, I I was engaged by it, but it definitely wasn't the thing that I thought of most first ever. Like I wasn't ever like, ooh, what who impregnated Tui? What happened? Like it it didn't feel I, w- I wasn't excited by that mystery, but not in like a bad way. It's just like that wasn't what I was here for. And that's what that wasn't what we were here for in the show. Like, I think so much more than the mystery behind Tui's pregnancy is the mystery behind why nobody in this town seems to fucking give a fuck, including her family. And Matt cares and like loves his daughter. But then we also get this lingering possibility that he is a father because he, again, has fucked everybody apparently in this town. And then I think that the other thing is uh, you get a sense very early on that the Mitchum family tree is like quite twisted. Um, And so you're kind of like, what is happening over here? Uh, And also you get the whole larger question of like, why don't the police care? And why are they so eager to brush off this mystery? Um, I think that one thing that we should note is that a sort of anti-police thing is like, has been like a definite through line in Jane Campion's work. And I think probably is like the strongest here, honestly. Uh, I think if we're looking at something like in the cut and the way that like uh, basically all of the gross people in in the cut are cops, I think with this one, it just like feels seamier because it's not about like one like individual like rotten egg. It is basically, a, I mean, it's like a fucking like Jeffrey Epstein-esque conspiracy uh spoilers let's just get into spoilers now yeah okay so that's your spoiler warning um i the thing that like i definitely remembered uh, is sort of like this like house of horrors that robin enters into at the very end when you think that the mystery has been solved and when you think that, like, everything has been tied up into a neat bow and she's sort of like, wait, this doesn't quite feel right. Like, this all feels, like, a little bit too neat. And then she goes to the police captain's house and she discovers that he is actually the guy who has been running a pedophile ring in his, like, seaside mansion. And there's a certain point at which Robin is like, hey, like, how are you affording this on, like, a police captain's salary? And he's just like... I don't know, I don't like know how much it, it costs. <laughs> yeah, he literally says, I don't know how much it costs about his own house. First of all, it's on Zillow. Everyone knows. Um, she Zillowed it. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I think that the... I, I And you definitely get these, like, little hints uh, here and there about sort of, like, the inefficiency of the cops. But then you sort of get, like, the shock of that, like, really brutal reveal of, like, all these, like, unconscious girls who have been roofied, basically, by the police captain. And then uh, basically used by, like, the pedophiles in town. And then by most of the men, it seemed like. 
Yes, like the businessmen in the town. And then you also find out that, like, this was like something that I only caught for the second time. You find out that, like, a lot of these uh, kids who are being used by Matt came through a, a barista, like, training service uh, for, like, basically for, like, troubled, troubled kids. Youth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you find out that, like, not only is, like, the police captain using them in this, like, really gross sex trafficking ring, but he is, like, just, like, training them to be in-service work, which, like, added to me just, like, this, like, extra layer of, like, arrogance to that character and his, like, venality. I don't know. I, it was just, like, a very, it was, like, very gothic, and yet, like, there was this, like, weird ring of truth to it. Well, and what, well, I have two things. One is that I, definitely not the time or place, but it was very funny how he had a bottle on his counter that literally said the word roofies. Yes. um, (laughs) Which is just like, okay, we get it. We get it. But what I found interesting about that whole storyline that we find out about basically right at the end is that like, none of these girls seem to remember any of their trauma like i don't know Tui seems happy to go with these girls and the police captain like just because they're like gonna go hang out go to the movies or something and like it almost seems like none of the girls that are being abused even are aware of what has been done to them like we have like Tui doesn't even understand how she got pregnant so like it's I think that makes sense, especially when you have, like, someone like G.J., who is constantly being like, the body knows, the body will tell you. That was some nonsense. But, like, it also contradicts, like, you know, I mean, or, or it's sort of like, there's a contradiction there, and sort of like this idea that, like, yeah, I think that you're right, like, uh, Tui's body... It's evidence, but there would be a lot more, like, signs of trauma everywhere. I think, like, the, like, larger allegory of it really worked for me in that this is, like, a town that's been so isolated and is so, I don't know, there's almost this, like, Donner Party-esque thing to it where because these people have decided that they are unreachable by the outside world. They have begun, like, feeding on their own children. And I think, like, that really worked for me. I don't... But, like, again, I think that's maybe a little bit of, like, a dream logic as opposed to, like, a logistical reality. Right. And I I think that is a great point. makes total sense. And also, like, it speaks to the literal and figurative incestuousness of this town. Yeah. And how, like, Matt Mitchum seems to be the dad of, like, every single child. And yet he is also now impregnating his own children. Because it turns out that he is the father of Tui's child. And, um, like, he actually is also the father of Robin, Elizabeth Moss's character. And I thought that was, like, the police captain lying. And because Matt Mitchum uh was dead by the time the dna test took place the police captain could say whatever he wanted like i i definitely had that feeling too but i was just gonna take it at its word because also in those results it was determined that jono who is uh robin's love interest and also matt mitchum's son 
thus making Robin and Jono's relationship incest. He like showed up with results saying like, oh, by the way, you're not his kid. Okay. To Jono. So like they were doing like Matt Mitchum specific DNA testing, it seemed. Okay. I mean... But regardless, like e- either way, it doesn't like really matter because even if he didn't actually, it still speaks to what we're saying about like the feeding on your own children, literally to the extent that you were feeding on your own daughter. Yeah. Possibly. Because like he even says like so often how much he loves her and how like strong he feels about her. So even if like he admires he w- her. Actually- right. In a way that makes you think maybe he admires her enough to like. Have sex with her. Sorry. I'm just... No, I know what you're saying. Also, what's so... Like, now that we've watched it all, I hate to say this, but I feel bad for the pedophile. (laughs) The Austrian pedophile? Who is like a red herring. Right. There's this whole subplot at the beginning of the series where, like, there's this one guy who is clearly, um, as you said before, we knew exactly what he'd done, an Austrian sex pervert. And then it's like, oh, no, he actually has been convicted of, like, pedophilia. And Mm -hmm. so he's kind of been ostracized by the town and ends up, like, possibly committing suicide, though really it seems like he was probably murdered um, by the community. But, like... Or murdered with the sanction of the police, which is so many of the murders in this town. Which is so, in some ways, like, so sad because, like, he has kind of, this character seems to have grappled with his disgusting nature. Mm -hmm. And, like, he is so aware of, like, how he has erred and how he, like, can or cannot interact with children that, like when you then find out that everybody else is actually also fucking the kids, you kind of do feel bad for this guy who's like, everybody is, well, because I, not because everybody else is doing the sin and he hates himself despite not doing the sin. Right. And that presumably the men who killed him are taking out on him the guilt that they are actually feeling. Oh, I did not consider that. I don't know. So, like, there's a way to feel pity for him without Mm -hmm. feeling pity for the horrible acts that he has committed in his past. Okay. I will accept that. I think one of the really great things about this town is how you get these, like, really well-sketched supporting characters outside of the women's camp, like, in the small town that make it feel recognizably like a small town. Um, there was sort of, like, that group of, like, women working for Matt Mitchum who just, like, feel very, you know, like, leather-skinned in the sense of, like, not visually, but just, like, they are going to, like, have these, like, very tough hides and they are going to, like, keep everyone's secrets, even though, like, keeping those secrets is, like, secretly killing them. Uh, we have the sort of, like, pedophile outcasts that you were talking about. Uh, one example I really loved was the guy who sort of seemed like he had, uh, his name is Putty, 
And he was basically, like, not, like, in our reality. He, he was, like, a schizophrenic or something. But yeah. he is, like, the one guy. He had some sort of mental illness. Yes. Yeah. And his mom apparently was a midwife for 30 years. And so he really, like, wanted to help Tui by giving her, like, a book on, like, how to give birth. And, or, yeah, I and, like, basically, like, wanted to help out, but also was sort of, like, incapable of doing so. But he's always, like, at, like, bars uh, where Robin also is constantly. And he just, like, feels like the type of guy that, like, you, everyone's like, knows and everyone sort of, like, tolerates. And I was like, yeah, like, even though this community is deeply fucked up, like, you can feel why people would feel that sense of community here. Right. Well, and if like, if this is the only community you got. Yeah. Um, I think that we would be a little bit remiss if we didn't talk about just like the beautiful landscapes. Ugh, Jane Campion's best thing. <laughs> and because this is a more rural town, uh, you have people just like randomly riding horses in the same town where the people have uh, cars. I think that like, in there's like one shot, I think, where... Tui is, like, on a horse, and she has her little chihuahua in her arms and, like, a rifle on her back. And it's just, like, this really beautiful image of, like, strength. Mm -hmm. um, even though we know that this is a girl who's been, like, abused and uh, is pregnant and doesn't know why. But she, there's sort of this, like, beautiful resilience to her. Uh, that I think is probably like my favorite image of this uh, very visually beautiful TV show. Yeah, I think that like all of the landscapes, all of the scenery is just so captivating, but also she's not scared, to, but also Campion isn't scared to show us how dangerous it is too, as you mentioned like all the way at the beginning of our conversation, because like one of the saddest moments of the entire series, when there are a lot of sad moments in the series, is when Tui and her friend, uh, Jamie. whatever his name is, yeah, Tui and her friend Jamie are defending themselves as Mitchum's men like descend on them. And so he takes her coat and runs out as if he is her running away so that like they chase after him while she's still there alone with the gun and gets left. But like, they eventually chase him off of a cliff and we literally see his body like fall hundreds of feet in the air yeah, onto the ground. And it's like, I mean, we don't actually see the impact. Thank God it's not midsummer, but um, like. That's the it, first time you've said that about midsummer. Oh, I mean, the thing is that I only like the gruesomeness in midsummer. I don't want it anywhere else. Um, but I love looking at it in midsummer. Um, but while it is beautiful, it is also terrifying. And, like, I don't know, it, it happened as such an accident, too. Like, he just, like, slipped and then started sliding down the rock face. And it it scared me. I would not be able to... I would not have been an actor on that shoot. Not going hiking anywhere soon in New Zealand? Nope. I think that that landscape also... There's a sort of, like, precariousness to all of it. And... As there is, like, with your existence in this town, like, if you know your place in this town, then you're okay. As long as you do what, like, the people in charge tell you to do. You know, just like the women who work for Matt Mitchum. But if you, like, take one wrong step, 
again, uh, like Bob, then like your life could be over very quickly. And I think the landscape like really captures that. Uh, we are recording this in December, and I am a California weather wimp, and I have been complaining to Daniel off the podcast a lot about how cold it is. And I think watching, because you know it's like in the forties, uh, watching Brr. top of the lake, you can just like also feel how cold it is. And of course, they tell you like the entire time, like no one can survive in this blah blah blah. But yeah, it's shot. Um, I think it's ex- shot very coldly. Yeah, it's shot expressively enough that like you can feel how cold that water is. And I just want to do like a very quick shout out to that beautiful uh, opening credit sequence where mm. you get like a sort of like painterly shot of like the lake and then you just sort of descend from the lake like underground and it's such a beautiful like encapsulation of the layers and layers and layers of secrets that form this town and how... Uh, basically everyone is sort of like trapped within these secrets because no one can bear to talk about them and it ruins their life anyway. Yeah. Opening credit sequence is beautiful. I think the whole world is beautiful and it's a great juxtaposition between like the beauty of their surroundings and the like actual horrific nature of what's going on in the town. And I think that like, Jane Campion is so good about putting the landscape in contrast with whatever story she's telling. All right. Well, now it's time for some rankings. Your favorite. Can't wait. And also, this is super comparable because it's a six-hour movie. Mm Mm-hmm. I think my rankings are going to be pretty uncontroversial. Uh, mm-hmm. Number one, the piano, and then holy smoke, and then I think this honestly, top of the lake, bright star, uh, in the cut, an angel at my table, and then sweetie. Right. And also, when we discuss power of the dog, our rankings are going to be lit. Oh yeah, can't wait. <laughs> um, I I think that mine's pretty similar, though. Of course, I have the correct top choice of Holy Smoke first, mm. then the piano, Top of the Lake season one, Bright Star, and then the grab bag of whatever's at the bottom. Sweetie, Angel at my table, and in the cut, interchangeable is the bottom three. So Daniel, how come you never saw season two? I didn't hear great things. <laughs> uh, well, you heard correctly. I am really looking forward to doing our discussion of season two, which I remember being quite a shit show. Great. I can't (laughs) wait. That means I'm going to love it. Uh, Probably, yeah. But at the very least, I feel like we can probably agree that Nicole Kidman's wig in season two is better than Arby's wig in season one. The Nicole Kidman... Uh, Jane Campion partnership is a very interesting one. And Yep. And we will be covering it with Portrait of a Lady. Well, that's about it for this episode. Thank you so much for joining us. If you'd like to contact us, we're at allaboutfilmpod at gmail.com. And we'll talk to you next time when we're discussing Top of the Lake, China Girl. <laughs>